Romans chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. Uh, but uh, for, for the sake of continuity, let me read verses 5 through 10. Uh, those 7 through 10 are our focus in the sermon. And hear the word of God. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're tre- you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful uh, for your word. We thank you for the way it teaches uh, your church, the ways of truth, uh, and and is the very essence, as our Lord tells us, of discipleship, not only being baptized that is brought into the church, but having taught to us everything that you commanded us. And so we gather together now at your word, as the Christians have done throughout the centuries, And as you revived in the time of the Reformation, it was more than anything a revival of preaching, preaching of your word. And we ask you to instruct us and to enlighten us and to, uh, just as your revelation in in chapters uh, 1, 17 and 18, do not just mean a bringing to light, but an actual bringing to bear upon the recipients. So we pray the preaching would not just be an opening of the eyes and the ears, but also a changing of the heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are still evaluating Paul's basic claim as to, uh, and there's two main, two main pegs to this argument. One, the un- universality of sin, that is, all men alike are sinners, it doesn't matter who you are. And thus, number two, as a corollary to this, the inescapability of judgment, or the liability all men have as sinners to the judgment and the justice of God. Now, those things together form the major thesis to be proved, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, to the end of chapter 3, verse 20, uh, paving the way, beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, for Paul to unfold the manner of justification, which is by faith. And so, Paul begins in chapter 1, verse 18, by stating, as you know, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteous, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. No, it's unrighteousness and ungodliness, excuse me, of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And he presents this, this theme, the wrath of God being revealed against sinners, as a counterpoint to the power of God to save in the gospel, which he had just spoken of, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, as his main, his main uh, assertion of the epistle. Gospel is the power of God to save. Of course, the gospel can save anyone. That's what that's Paul's point. That's his greater point in the letter to the Romans. And that's why Paul says that he wasn't ashamed of it and why he was so eager to preach it. But saved from what is perhaps the most pressing question to be answered before we consider what salvation consists of. And so that is the question he proceeds to answer first. And the answer to that question is, again, the question being saved from what? From the wrath of God. 
a wrath which, once more, is being revealed presently against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, which he says includes Jew and Gentile alike. The Gentile's ignorance, chapter 1, his ignorance in particular with regard to the law, will not help him or excuse him on the day of judgment and wrath, nor will the Jew's possession of the law form uh, the basis of an excuse or an immunity from God's wrath and his righteous judgment. The all-important question, as we saw last time, for the Jew and the Gentile alike, is what did you do and how did you live? That's what the final judgment or the last day will reveal. It is for that that you will give an account to God. And thus we saw in the prior statement, verses 5 and 6, which I included in the reading, that the coming day of wrath will be a revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And the righteousness of that judgment will uh, be seen to consist in the fact that God will on that day render to each according to his deeds. A perfectly righteous justice on display and brought into exercise. In other words, it will involve an application of justice to every individual. To the Jew, to the Greek, to whomever. To each will be rendered in accordance to his deeds and to his life. And that is something, that statement, Romans chapter 2, verse 6, perhaps uh, seemingly controversial in the context of a setting in which Paul is setting forth justification by faith alone. And yet we saw last time that that is a statement which occurs time and again in Scripture. It occurs in the Gospels. It occurs in other epistles. On the last day, there will be a rendering to all according to what they have done in the flesh. In fact, we could say, uh, this goes back even into the Old Testament. It isn't just present in the New Testament. But this is something of an axiom in Scripture that Paul is just reciting to believers and, and, and to unbelievers as well. The last day, there will be a rendering to each according to his deeds. It's a statement, plain and simple, of the justice of God, what it consists of. The fact that no one is punished except in accordance to his own sin. Nor is anyone rewarded except uh, there be reason to reward him, which is how justice always functions and nowhere more so than in God's own courtroom. It is a courtroom of perfect justice. That's what we need to see. And that will be on display on the last day abundantly, uh, so much so that even the unbeliever will unwittingly be forced to confess it. And it is the truth of this statement or this axiom that the justice of God is involving a rendering to each according uh, to his deeds. In other words, the the rendering or the the bestowal either of condemnation or of eternal life corresponds to to one's life. That is the thought that verse six that is elaborated in detail in verses seven and ten, which uh, seven through ten, which become now our focus. So beginning in verse seven, he's just carrying the thought of verse six forward. God will uh, render to each according to his deeds on the day of wrath. Verse six, eternal life. Verse seven, he says to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor and immortality. Verse eight, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but unrighteousness, indignation and wrath. He's again applying verse six to these particular cases. And he is establishing That there are two possibilities for man on the day of wrath. Either he will be rewarded with eternal life, glory, honor, peace, and so forth. Or he will suffer, as Paul says, God's indignation and wrath. 
And as we'll later see in Matthew 25, there's nothing in between. These are the two possible outcomes, and these are the only two possible outcomes. In between these two groups, there is a line of separation that cannot uh, be crossed. And once more, what is decided on that day, what is rendered, will correspond exactly to the life lived now on this earth. which you sow today, you will reap in heaven. What you treasure up in this life will correspond to the outcome of that day, either a treasuring up of wrath or treasuring up of eternal life, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. And so again, what Paul is describing simply is the application of God's perfect justice according to truth to the individual on the last day. And the first thing I would notice about verses 7 through 10 is their chiastic structure. That is not a word which I use often, and yet I uh, find it is unavoidable to use here. There is a chiasm. A chiasm is uh, simply a, a, a structure that looks like this. A, B, B, A. And so there's a statement which is made in the first phrase, and then it's repeated at the end, and then there is a separate statement that is made twice in the beginning. A, B, B, A. And so verse 7 is the first A. He tells us that the rendering to each according to his deeds will mean, in the one case, eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But then in verse 8, he states the other side, which is our B. It's our first B. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Then in verse 9, he restates the same idea, only in reverse order. He begins with the outcome and then proceeds to the life. So our second B is this, verse 9, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. And then finally, verse 10 is our second A. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good. And again, you notice in verse 10, the outcome is stated first and then the life. And actually in verse 7, it says eternal life to those, depending on your translation, actually eternal life comes at the end of verse 7. And so in both 7 and 8, it's the life, then the outcome, versus 9 and 10, it's the outcome, then the life. And that's how a chiasm works. And so what we have here, in a sense, is Paul poetically stating the two possibilities or the two outcomes which will correspond to the life, to the life, the rendering to each according to his deeds, verse 6, on the day of wrath, verse 5. In other words, it will involve the principle, the operative principle on that day is works. It will involve a rendering according to works. And as Paul considers the coming day, remember, he is establishing the universality of sin, number one, and number two, the liability of all to the judgment of God. As he considers the coming day, he is saying that not all will be condemned. He's considering condemnation. That's his theme. And yet he is asserting that not everyone will be condemned. Of course, he's saying that some will be condemned. In fact, many and most will be condemned. And the fact is that their condemnation will be perfectly just. They will have no excuse on that day that God was wrong or unfair or unjust to condemn them. But he's also saying, and this is unavoidable, as we, as we see what he's saying in verses 7 through 10. He is also saying that some on that day will be saved. And they will be glorified and they will inherit eternal life. The day of wrath will not be a day of wrath for all, but it will be a day of salvation for some. 
And so let us look at both sides here. And in each you notice, again, the life and the outcome of the life. And we'll begin with the negative, verses 8 and 9 are two Bs. The reality of judgment for the man who has no works. This corresponds with the, the greater section we're in, chapter 1, verse 18 through 320. We really have no difficulty here. I don't have as much to say about this point, but let me briefly summarize it. Look first at the man's life, how it is described, the man who is damned on the last day. The characteristics of his life are these. He is self-seeking. He does not obey the truth, but obeys unrighteousness instead, and he does evil. Verses 8 and 9. So you see, that is a very general description. And I would notice that what it describes is the course of his life, his characteristic outlook and living. What is it that describes this? It is uh, very simply that he does what he wants. He lives as he pleases. It is the way that he ignores God's truth and obeys instead his sinful appetites and so as a result does evil. There's really no need to examine this in any great detail. This is a description of man in sin. And we're easily able to see that. I would only notice that the word translated here as self-seeking, it's the first descriptor, is really better translated as contentious. And this gives us some sense of the fundamental problem of man in sin. Here is one which, who is confronted with the truth of God, but he contends with it. He is in a constant quarrel with God. He's always contending against the truth that he knows and yet which he suppresses so that he can live a life of unrighteousness and ungodliness. And the result of this is that he doesn't obey God, but he obeys unrighteousness and he does what is evil. The question then which we have and which is uh, clearly outlined here is the fate of what is the fate of such a person? What does such a man deserve? This man who's in this constant quarrel with God. And we have a colorful picture, a fourfold answer, in fact, at the end of verse eight and the beginning of verse nine, wrath, indignation, tribulation and anguish. What an amazing series of words and what an awful series of words. If nothing that Paul has said has arrested the attention of the man in sin, yet this ought to. Each of them in their own way contribute to our understanding of what that day, the day of wrath, will mean uh, for that man in his own experience of it. They describe what it will mean for him. Of course, first of all, wrath. It will be a day of wrath. It will involve an experience personally of the wrath of God. No longer will he be able to push it into the future or to the corners of his mind, it will confront him in a way he cannot deny it. But as though to underscore the intensity of the wrath being revealed to him on that day, Paul adds the word indignation. Here is the fury of his wrath poured out upon the sinner. Here is how God feels about the man in sin. He's indignant, resulting for the man. Especially here we think of his own experience, resulting in tribulation and anguish. It will be for him a day of terrible calamity and woe, a day of tribulation and anguish, unlike anything he has ever seen before. And he will only then begin to suffer for his sin. And God will never cease to punish once he has begun. Of course, we realize by these four words that we have a description not only of the day of wrath, but of hell. 
The eternity of hell that that day begins and will never cease for the sinner, for the man in sin. It will be a constant experience of God's wrath, of his indignation, of tribulation and anguish. Really, the thing is too awful to consider. And I dare not stay with this idea for long. I'm more eager to consider the other side, which is the outcome for the righteous. The more I study this passage, the more I discuss it with other Christians, the more I realize this is where all the questions lie. What about the righteous? What is Paul saying? Well, you notice first their deeds, their their life, their outlook and so forth. Number one, and then number two, correspondingly, that which is rendered unto them as a result. And so their life first and then the outcome of their life. Again, that's what the last day will reveal for the righteous. And so look at their life first of all. And ask yourself, who is Paul describing? The thing that characterizes the existence of the righteous who will be rewarded on the last day with everlasting life is that they were those first who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. And then in verse 10 he simply says to everyone who works what is good. Now if you calmly consider uh, what Paul and who Paul is describing here, you will realize at once that uh, there is only one person or one type of person that fits the description. And that is the Christian man. Paul is describing the Christian man who has been saved by grace and who has been set on this pursuit. A life full of good works, a life which is seeking after uh, glory, glory, honor and immortality and a pursuit which will not be disappointed, Jesus tells him. All of his disciples. All of his disciples, I mean. Now, if you think of it again, looking at this description, you'll realize on the other side that there isn't anyone in the world who fits the description. But for the Christian. But the amazing thing is that the Christian actually does. And so realizing this, it becomes clear that Paul is saying in the midst of this chiasm or the application of the principle of justice on the last day. That the Christian is one who will inherit eternal life and glory and honor and peace on the last day. These are the things that belong to him and that he can look forward to enjoying in the life to come. And so Paul is describing the Christian is one who is godly in these particular ways, uh, ways which I will analyze in a moment. But let me first notice that this is characteristic of Paul. He is not doing anything here that he won't do later in Romans or that he doesn't do in other parts of uh, his writings. He always describes the Christian in this positive fashion as someone who is personally godly and someone who is personally righteous. He isn't suggesting they're thereby justified by their works, but nevertheless, as someone who is, in fact, godly, unlike the world. If you look, for instance, in Romans chapter 6, you will see this is his exact point. Who is the Christian? Well, the Christian is not one, he says, who sins that grace may abound. Certainly not. That was the position of the Jews who despised and abused the goodness of God. But that isn't what the Christian does. He doesn't despise and abuse the goodness of God. He doesn't sin that grace may abound. His life looks more like this. Again, it is a positive demonstration of godliness and righteousness. He says uh, in verses 12 through 15 to Christian people, therefore, 
Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. And then in verse 15, what then shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. And on and on he goes. And his point simply is that this is precisely what Christ will point to on the last day. The presence of a real, practical, personal godliness being worked out in their lives. Precisely what Paul is calling us to in the book of Romans. It's the man who understands the doctrines of grace and of justification by faith. Who has really grasped the gospel. And whose life will then begin to correspond to it. And more and more he will work it out. I think even stronger though is what he says in Romans chapter 8. You know, we love to quote Romans chapter 8 as this triumphant assertion of the gospel, and certainly it it is. But there's also so much in that chapter about the need, the pressing need for godliness, and the fact that those who are Christians will be godly, plain and simple. Whereas the way of the world, the way of the flesh, that looks altogether different. He gives this description after what he says in Romans chapter uh, 8, verses 1 through 4, about there being no condemnation and about uh, there being a different principle at work in the believer, not the law, but the spirit. And then in verses 5, um, five through uh, 8, he gives a description of the man in flesh. He's drawing the contrast. The man of the flesh is the man who cannot please God. He has no interest in doing it. This is what he says, verse 8. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Their whole life is bent in another direction. It's the man who was described in verses 8 and 9 of Romans chapter 2. But the Christian's life, who is full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit, looks like this. He says to Christian people, verses 9 through 14, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now listen to this, verses 12 through 14. The spirit dwelling in you. What is the result? It isn't a life that cannot please God, but a life that can. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Again, the correspondence between the life and the outcome. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? Those who are able to cry out, Abba, Father. Those who are being led by the Spirit, not those who are being led by the flesh. Those, in other words, who are doing the will of God and who are living a life that is pleasing to God. And those who are engaged through the resources and the life of the spirit in, in, in mortifying the deeds of the flesh. And so the contrast that is present in Romans chapter 2, even though he doesn't explicitly say Christian, we notice is the same contrast that is present in other places. Therefore, there is no injustice to suggest that Paul is doing the exact same thing here in Romans chapter 2. He is only saying that there are two kinds of people and there are two kinds of outcomes. And those who will be saved on the last day are those who are led by the spirit, Christian people. 
A Christian is one, he says, who seeks glory, honor, and immortality. In other words, it is a question of pursuit. The unbeliever is pursuing one thing, which is sin and his own appetites. The believer is pursuing the things of heaven. In contrast to the wicked, wicked, therefore, the, the Christian is the one who is seeking the glories of the life to come. They are, if you think of the language uh, and, and the descriptions of the Christian life in Hebrews, which was our prior study, the Christian is a pilgrim who is seeking a home which is not his, and, uh, or excuse me, which is his, but which cannot be found in this world. And so all of the exhortations of the book of Hebrews come to mind here. Keep on going in this pursuit. Keep seeking these things. And if you do, then you will find them. Likewise, in the case of the next descriptor, again, Hebrews coming to mind, who by patient continuance in doing good. In other words, Paul is just saying what our Lord himself said, namely that the one who endures to the end will be saved and only him. It isn't the one who says that he believes for a little while and then falls away, but it's the one who keeps on believing. It is him whom we will find at Christ's right side on the last day. The Christian life, uh, to use the language then of Romans chapter 8 once more, is a life marked by hope in the life to come. Which, or for which, with patient endurance, he waits eagerly. Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25. But not idly, you see. He isn't just standing around waiting for it to come. But Paul says, by patient continuance in doing good. Here are people who actually live lives which are good in the positive sense and which really deserve to be called good. People who do good works. People who are like their father who is good. Romans chapter 2 verse 4. All the while, you see, while he's waiting, while he's looking forward, while, while he's seeking, he's doing good. And he's seeking to do good with every opportunity he has. And finally, we see added to glory and honor, these things that he's seeking, verse 10, peace, glory, honor, and peace to him who works what is good, which is another distinctly Christian grace. It is not something that belongs to anyone who is outside the realm of Christianity and grace. Peace is the fruit of reconciliation. Again, a distinctly Christian grace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And so without going into any greater detail about all of this, we very easily see a description in verses 7 and 10 of the Christian man. And so far we have no difficulty. The difficulty lies rather in the question, what are the relevance of his works on the last day? Because as you remember, Paul is describing uh, an application of the principle that to each will be rendered according to his deeds. And that is precisely what we see in the case of the believer just as the unbeliever. Of course, we're, we're easily able to see how this is the case for the wicked. His works become the basis of his condemnation. We have no difficulty here. But is Paul here suggesting the opposite? And here's where the difficulty lies. Is he suggesting that the good works of believers form the basis of his justification? And do you know that there are those who, on the basis of this text... And I mean Protestants who actually suggest this, that Paul is, after all, in some sense, saying that the believer will be justified by works. And they are at great pains to, to twist the gospel uh, and to make that idea fit within the gospel. 
And yet I would say that is perhaps the most absurd thing anyone could possibly claim in the midst of this of all books. That the believer is, after all, in some sense justified by his work. Given the fact that the major thesis, and this takes us well beyond just the minor section we're in, chapters 1 through 3. But the major thesis of the whole epistle, stated in chapter 1, verse 16, and then found uh, at the end of chapter 3 to the end of the epistle, is the impossibility of such a thing. The impossibility, and this is what Paul closes with at the end of this minor section in chapter 3, verse 20. The impossibility of a man being justified by his works. But rather, to the contrary, the great assertion of Paul in the book of Romans is that justification, salvation, eternal life are the results of grace and received by faith alone, not by works. And so again, the question amounts to this. In what sense do works play in to this rendering unto believers on the last day? Let me offer two quotes. The first by Dr. Gaffin in his book, By Faith and Not By Sight. Where for, for a few pages he grapples with this, and I think very helpfully. He says, at the final judgment, works will serve as an essential criterion. End quote. Very simple. Very simply. And he's clear when he says this, that works will serve as an essential criterion. That this is not only true for unbelievers, but it's true for believers as well, which I've been asserting all along. And if Romans chapter 2 is not clear enough for you, then go to 2 Corinthians 10 or 5 verse 10, where Paul is speaking to believers. That each will give an account for his life and will be rendered. uh, There will be a rendering to him according to his life. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 5. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his many sermons on these passages. uh, This I thought was the most helpful quote. Summing it up. He says the question of works is essential in the matter of judgment. But again the question is if we acknowledge this. In what sense for the believer. If works do not form the basis of his salvation. And thus his right to internal life. In what sense is there a rendering to him on that day according to his deeds? And this is an answer which I would divide like this uh, in two. The first is an answer which I already gave. And so I'll give briefly here at the end of the prior sermon. I said that there will be a rendering to the believer on the last day. This is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5. There will be a rendering to the believer on that day. It will correspond to his life. But it will be one of reward and not of merit. There will be no sense on that day in which the believer, uh, which Paul describes as he does, like uh, he does in uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 7 and verse 10. No sense in which that person, as good as he was, even the best believer, has earned or merited eternal life on that day. And yet there will be a rendering unto him as a reward or a gift. The bestowal of something that God in his, in his grace is pleased to give. I don't know what it is, by the way. We sometimes refer to it as our crowns in heaven or our stations in heaven. The truth is we don't know. On this point, scripture is silent. Nevertheless, there will be a bestowal of rewards on the last day. And some, Paul says, will suffer loss. They will fail to receive their reward. Nevertheless, they will still be saved. But I think the second part of the answer is even more helpful in understanding the sense in which there will be a rendering to the believer on the last day according to his life. The sense in which, in other words, 
as Dr. Gaffin says, for the believer, works will serve as an essential criterion. And here I want to bring in the parable that I read earlier in Matthew chapter 25 to fill out the picture of what Paul is describing, because it is the same scene. It is the day of wrath. It is the scene of final judgment, which occurs, uh, again, filling out the picture using Matthew 25. It occurs as Christ returns in glory and sits on his glorious throne and he gathers all men before him. And what he does is he, uh, he does that is uh, he separates uh, one group to the right and one group to the left. As he gathers men, he separates the sheep and the goats. And so you notice there the same thing which is being stressed in Romans chapter 2 verses 7 through 10. These two groups and their correspondingly differing outcomes on that day. After this division occurs, one group will be, Jesus says, graciously invited into the kingdom prepared for them. And the other group, the goats, will be cast into the fires of hell, which eternity will not be able to quench for them. The whole thing is summed up in verse 46, where he says, let's see, Matthew, uh, uh, there we are. And these, speaking of the goats, will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. And what you notice in that parable is the same truth that is presented in Romans chapter 2. That the basis of evaluation is that of works, of both groups. As Christ speaks to the sheep on his right hand, he commends them as those who did good unto the least of these, my brethren. That is Christ's brothers, Christians, even the least. And so he invites them to enter into a kingdom prepared for them. Likewise, to the wicked, his main charge against them was their mistreatment, or at least the way they neglected or ignored Christ's brothers, even the least. So in each case, the outcome corresponds to the deeds or the life. To those who did well unto the least of these his brothers, eternal life and salvation. But to those who did not, the fires of hell. It is exactly the same truth we have in Romans chapter 2. Only I would make these two observations about that scene in which the separation occurs and the assessment as well occurs of both groups from Matthew 25. One is that before the evaluation occurs, the sheep and the goats are already separated. The sense is that in their resurrected state, it is already clear what they are in either case, sheep or goats. That is, even before any mention of their works occur. So what is, what is at stake in this whole episode is not becoming a sheep or a goat, but rather a clear demonstration of who was which. Second, we see that Christ speaks of entering uh, the kingdom prepared for them before the foundation of the world. That's what he says to the sheep. Which harkens back to what we considered last time about the book of life. That the place which the elect, or as they're called here, Christ's sheep. The place which they have in heaven is one which has already been decided before they ever lived. And before they performed a single good work. And thus that their place there was determined not on the basis of their works, but according to sovereign electing love. A kingdom prepared for you. That's what Christ says to the sheep. Not a kingdom which you have merited. But we're still left with the question, what 
part do works play in this assessment? And the answer, finally, is simply that the works which they did display or demonstrate that they were, in fact, after all, sheep and not goats. That these were indeed the ones for whom the kingdom was prepared before the foundation of the world. Just as in the case of the others, it was the absence of their works that display in a decisive manner that they were in fact goats, even if they claimed to be sheep in this life. Even if perhaps they deceived the church. There will be no deception on the last day. And the value of works according to scripture is the way they demonstrate the reality of saving faith. In other words, how can you tell who is a sheep and who is a goat? Well, it is the same today as it will be on that day. You can only tell on the basis of what a man does, on the basis of the life, not on what he says. There are indeed many who claim to have faith, who cry out, Lord, Lord, yet who by their lives demonstrate they never really knew him. That's precisely what Jesus will say to them on the last day. Matthew chapter 7. They are goats who think they are sheep. But who is the true sheep? It's the one who not only says he has faith, but who has works as well. It is precisely in this sense that James says in James chapter 2 verses 17 and 18. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. The reality of faith, James says, is seen in the presence of works and not otherwise. Otherwise, it's just empty talk. John says something very similar. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, he says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods... And sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue. You see, just what you say. But in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth. And shall assure our hearts before him. That's what our Lord is saying in Matthew 25. He's saying that our works, especially those done to our fellow Christian are precisely what will reveal on that day that the love of God was known by us and it abided in us. Just as the absence of works seen in the absence, uh, or excuse me, the absence of love seen in the absence of good works unto the brethren will prove that we never really knew him and his love never really abided in us. And so the teaching amounts to this, to sum it up, that works will play a decisive role on the last day. Not as the basis of salvation, but as crucial evidence that one was in fact saved. And apart from these works, the claim to be saved on that day, just as today, will ring hollow and empty. That is the teaching, beloved, of Scripture everywhere. Not just Romans chapter 2, but of all Scripture. Go and read the book of Revelation, for instance. You'll find it there as well. But I would only notice to the relief of the overly scrupulous conscience, the way such things, the assessment of doing good, came as a surprise to Christ's sheep. Lord, when did we ever do these things, they said. 
You see, these were not men who boasted in their works or in their righteousness. These were men who were surprised that their Lord would ever speak of them so positively. But to their amazement, Christ still commends them and rewards them and invites them in. And so I would say to the overly scrupulous conscience, in light of what I've just said, and I'm speaking, of course, to the believer, the one who looks for works but doesn't quite see them now, well, I say, all hope is not lost. Look rather to Christ to save you. Place your hope in him and stake everything upon him and his ability and his willingness to save. And then trust that on that day, He will find reason enough in your life to prove that you really were one of his, even if to your surprise. Amen. And let us now come to the table.